Let's think about this for a second. What's more important, the pace at which a business must change its technology in order to keep up with its competitors or the culture that makes the whole thing flow efficiently? It's an interesting conundrum and one that Gotham Palapa, senior executive advisor at VMware, thinks about often. I look at things with a lens of culture, organization, and people and processes first, because it's very easy to bring in the right technology. Technology is much more discreet. It's people and culture that's non-discreet and non-deterministic. The bottom line for Gotham, culture wins, and it's time for companies of all sizes to invest in it. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Gotham, self-described as a culture evangelist author and a founder, explains how he works with some of VMware's biggest customers to help them transform their businesses. He talks about why he advocates for culture ahead of technology, and he gives his reasons for why focusing on workplace culture is going through a renaissance of its own. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have an executive advisor at VMware, Gotham Palapa. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Albert. Thank you for having me. All right. So I got to ask right out of the gate, what exactly do you advise on? I know you're the executive advisor at VMware. Tell us a little about what you do at VMware and what you're also up to, because we also know that you're the founder of another company called Transformity. And it sounds like you're about to be a publisher of a book. So we're going to talk, hit all those things in today's episode. Sure. So at VMware, I'm an executive advisor. We are a very small group of executives in previous roles and in different lives who have come together to share our thought leadership to customers of VMware. What we do is we partner with them on their business transformation, which is so important right now, especially because of the pandemic. And we help them with their cloud modernization journey, their app modernization journey, and the DevSecOps journey, and help them um, share our failures and our learnings with the executives. We partner with the C-suite and uh, help them on their journey. That's pretty much what we do as executive advisors at VMware. Um, It's a small group. It also goes by the name of Tons of Value Advisory. So if any of you have heard of that, that's who we are. Awesome. And real quick, just for clarification, do you advise the VMware team from a customer's perspective or do you advise the customers of VMware about other customers' perspectives? Great clarification. We actually do both. So we help with the app modernization portion of things, right? And that's at the tip of the sphere of um, a lot of the transformation. So we pair with uh, VMware's customers, the C-suite of those organizations and help them transform. We also work very closely with internal VMware teams to help them uh, bring in their products and portfolios to create a very bespoke customer experience and product market fit or or a solution market fit, um, if you will, for that specific customer. No, that's awesome. And you mentioned earlier that you talk, one of your subject matter expertise, your subject matter expertise is in this app modernization. Yeah. And we've kind of heard this throughout our different guests talking about, you know, because a lot of companies today that we hear about that are in, let's say, get written up in articles, they're all cloud native software companies, high valuation, fast growth. That's the number one type of company that, you know, companies like Crunchbase and TechCrunch and stuff, they write about. Right. 
But app modernization is a real problem. Right. Legacy companies that have applications that are not ready for cloud. Talk a little bit about what you advise on, because I'm sure they all want, I'm sure the common theme people want to know is like how and cost, but give us an idea of what people are nervous about or what they're concerned about prior to modernizing their applications for cloud transformation. Yeah. Yeah. So um, before the pandemic hit, there was a certain path and a definition for app modernization. It was cloud native, um, converting the legacy or heritage applications from more of an on-prem to have a cloud native approach, much more abstraction and not having those monoliths or you know dependencies on a single huge blob of code and instead break it into smaller pieces and services and so on. That used to be the definition of app modernization. But since the pandemic, what has happened is that, you know, the entire world, as we all know, has shifted to more of a contactless digital experience. So it's digital first right now. And most of it is, um, has to fundamentally change. The business models have to change because customers don't want to go into brick and mortar stores. They're afraid and they want to have everything delivered to them easily and so on. So the features and functionalities that have to be delivered for uh, for customer delight are shifting. And so it's not just lifting and migrating the existing heritage applications from whatever data centers that you have or on-prem centers uh, into the cloud or a public IaaS, but it is truly trying to deconstruct and move the, the right services and the right features into more of a scalable, burstable, uh, manageable self-healing approach and philosophy. And that's truly what we at VMware believe is um, app modernization. So hopefully we can get into some examples. I think I have one. I was reading about, I was reading about how uh, one of the leaders in jewelry, uh, I won't name their name, mm-hmm. had to completely redo, or excuse me, they had to build from scratch, basically, a more user interface because traditionally they had relied on getting customers like Aaron our producer to come into the store to pick out their diamond. And then the associate on the back end could look up queries of like likes, pairings and all that stuff. And it would tell them like, this is like the perfect diamond for, for Aaron. Right. But now they said they had to flip it on its head. It's like that interface wasn't good enough, but yet they needed the same functionality. Cause to your point, people were no longer coming in stores to shopping for diamonds. They were just going to buy it online, which to me is mind boggling. You're going to buy a diamond online. I'm not going to spend whatever an engagement ring is supposed to cost online without talking to somebody, but it, they were t- saying, this is the way people are now buying. They were talking about how they had no, they basically didn't have a system to deliver that customer experience. They had the data on the back end, but they had no way of delivering to a customer like this pairs well with this. Right. That was the example I saw. I didn't know what other examples you've seen that like demonstrate how quickly things are changing for these companies. Retail sector has been hit a lot uh, because of this, right? I mean, you they used to rely on brick and mortar stores where, where the customer used to go in probably try on apparel or, you know, see how they look in the fitting rooms and all that. And now they have to make it all virtual. And you have things like, you know, Amazon Show, you have virtual uh, cameras, and you have all these various technologies, which are more related to augmented or virtual reality, where you upload your picture and you take a full length selfie of you, you upload it. And then you select the, the clothing that you want to wear. And it, it you know fits it on you and you can rotate it in 3D or 360 degrees to see how you look. I mean, that's fantastic, the technology that you're bringing in. But that means that you need to make it scalable. You need to make it resilient. You need to make it extremely 
powerful to accommodate for all these new technologies and these new services. Because if you're going to have even a little bit, let's say 10 to 15% degradation for a video feed, and the, the person is looking at themselves and trying to put on uh, apparel, if it doesn't look um, appealing enough, they're not going to make the sale. And when you're doing everything digital and when you're doing everything so virtual, customer loyalty is something that's going to drop. It, they, they don't have that patience anymore. Within 30 seconds, if you cannot appeal to the customer and make them feel happy and delighted, they're going to switch to your competitor. So it's really, really challenging to have that user experience and that interface so powerful and so appealing upfront. And that requires more compute, more um, patterns of uh, development, uh, you know, you have to embrace different things like event-driven architecture. Um, probably uh, you have to look at predictive analytics, do more of recommendation engines. There are so many things that go into it. And as your compute increases, you need to be able to scale not only vertically, but also horizontally and make sure you don't have that, you have that consistent quality of service. And that's why we firmly believe, and I, I personally believe that application modernization and the ability to move from a concept or an idea to consumption as quickly as possible or for implementation so that the user can consume it, that amount of time that it takes has to be as short as possible. And that's why we have all this DevSecOps push. We have uh, Kubernetes popping up everywhere. You have all these newer, sophisticated software development techniques. And th that's, that's really encouraging. So I'd love to kind of get a you know, fly on the wall experience. When you talk to one of these companies, if you talk to an executive who has not, they, let's say they just, I don't know, whatever reason, they just didn't invest enough in the digital experience. When they hear this stuff, what do they think? Are they scared? Are they like uh, begrudgingly willing to do it because they don't have an option? What's like the general attitude in the room when you come in and say, hey, by the way, this is what it takes. And by the way, it's not going to be easy. It's, the journey's not like, because, you know, if you listen to like, let's say um, one of the clouds, they'll tell you that it, a lot of the service providers will tell you that it's, it's pretty easy to do this, but we all know it's not. Right. <laughs> I'm curious what the attitude is in the room when you tell them and advise them this, because you're absolutely right. When it comes to like in that, whether it's apparel or diamonds or whatever else product you are, I can say without a doubt, if I speak for myself as a general consumer, 100% you're correct. If the experience is annoying in any way. I just call it annoying. If it's annoying in any way, I probably won't buy from this website. That's just how it is. That's just how my mind works. Yeah, that's true, right? I mean, the barrier of entry to a different website is so low. It's just another web click away or probably just a few keystrokes. And then your favorite search engine will just fill in the rest. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been very heartwarming, um, at least from my perspective, when I talk to a lot of executives and leaders. This pandemic has become that compelling event um, for a lot of companies that were either on the fence or they were thinking that they probably had to transform, but they had time. And then when everything went remote overnight, they suddenly realized that they don't have any time. The, the luxury of time has disappeared for all of us. So everyone knows that they do have to transform. It's just how much of appetite does that organization and does the leadership have? to transform, how aggressively can they transform is the conversation that we're usually having. And what we do specifically in this um, regard is we take a look at their business outcomes. 
because for us, it's not just about saving cost. It's about at the end of the day, what is your purpose as an organization? Why do you exist, right? That is the core of why people want to transform. So we go down through um, a, a very interesting experience with the executives and we really question them about what their business outcomes are. And it's not just the strategic outcomes or the company goals, but what truly are you trying to do in the market? We help them with that. And in those discussions, we then try to identify, okay, what does success mean to them? And then we drill down a little more deeper into what are the initiatives they currently have that are helping support and achieve that success. And then we bring in our um, expertise and help not just make it successful, but also sustainable. Because there are two different things. You can do a one-shot and you can implement things and it'll be widely successful, let's say year one or day one. But when day two comes around, and that's when the true, true problems and challenges come into the organization, we then um, you know, have to make sure that it's repeatable and it's sustainable. And so my technique has been more from a people perspective and from a process perspective. We, uh, I look at things with a lens of culture, organization, and uh, people and processes first, because it's very easy to bring in the right technology. Technology is much more discreet. It's people and culture that's non-discreet and non-deterministic. And so we work very closely on that. Pull the thread on the business outcomes, identify what success means and say, okay, how are you trying to measure this success? And how are you trying to measure that you're actually moving towards progress on your business outcome? And that becomes a very fa fascinating and fantastic discussion. And then we start building upon it and then create that bespoke customer journey map or a customer journey for um, each of the customers based upon their appetite, how aggressively they want to go, and also uh, where they currently are on the technical maturity uh, continuum. And so there is no silver bullet, unfortunately. There is a lot of conversation and dialogue that goes into this. And I am extremely happy and it's heartwarming to see how candid some of these um, leaders are when they talk about it because they do really recognize uh, the challenges that they're currently facing and they need help. And so it's really nice when they reach out and they, you know, they're much more humbler and they say, we do need help. We acknowledge that. So how are you going to help us? How is this problem being tackled? Because you hit on something just a second ago, which I've heard a couple different CTO CIOs kind of talk about, which is, it's not a technology problem. It's actually a people and skills problem. And I think that is scary for some because it's very difficult to upskill or bring in new people in mass. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not something you just turn, snap your fingers, all of a sudden it's there. You can snap your fingers and get a subscription to any technology you want, but you cannot snap your fingers and, and, and get knowledge, expertise, domain expertise to run these transformations. You were mentioning these, these leaders, they, they recognize that this is, a, this is a people challenge more so than anything. It's not a technological challenge. Right. What is the answer or what is, I guess there's not a single answer, but what is a suggestion that you and your group make to these organizations that recognize, hey, this, we don't have the skills or we don't have the capabilities or we don't have manpower. Whatever, the, whatever they don't have is usually the barrier for them to do this. How does this advisory group help them figure out a path to success? Yeah, I mean, you, you're, you're spot on about it, Albert. So the most important thing is about the people and the culture, right? They are the true 
value stream within the organization. And unless they're aligned properly to generate value for your organization, it's really not going to matter at all. So the way um, we approach it is that for us, empathy is at the core. I mean, at least for me, and I'm extremely passionate about this, empathy is at the core of everything that we do. More so now because we're almost 100% remote workforce still. And with that comes so many challenges. So when I start working with these executives and leaders, the first thing that I do is put on the lens of empathy and say, okay, let's take a look at how value is flowing within your organization from concept to creation. And we call this the path to production. And our first goal is to take a look at every single step and say, okay, what is the friction that is being generated within your organization by this? And how can we reduce it? And there are four major themes from a people and culture perspective that have emerged, or at least that I've adopted, and that has helped me work with um, some of the leaders. And they're on execution, collaboration, communication, and enablement. So with execution, we want to look at remote execution and say, how are we able to generate this value as quickly as possible, but reduce the amount of stress and overhead that we are inducing upon the, the remote workforce. Because what the workforce is doing is they're not just working from home. It's not that experiment anymore. It's life going on around them. I mean, they have pets, they have children um, attending virtual school in many places. Uh, their loved one is also on you know, another Zoom call or a Teams call or whatever. So there's, there's that thing going on. So this is something that I call as existence from home rather than work from home. And so looking at how we can improve the execution portion of things, bringing in more of a lean, agile, and the DevOps approach, more automation, reducing the manual toil, those are the things that we focus on um, as we go down that journey. The next thing we do is collaboration. We want to increase the amount of collaboration because everyone's working remote. And so bringing in newer techniques and approaches to be more collaborative emphasizing the need for um, asynchronous communication to help collaboration, uh, different online techniques. Pairing is a really good thing where you pair on multiple levels. In my particular role, I actually pair with the executive or the sponsor of the business transformation um, on a regular cadence and make sure that you know, I'm always available and I help them on their journey. And then uh, from a communication standpoint, um, stress upon asynchronous communication. If there's one thing that we're all suffering from, it's the number of meetings that have seriously increased over the last year, right? I mean, over 65% of the respondents. So I, I conducted a, a survey at the end of 2020 exploring this problem of meeting overload. And 65% of the respondents reported that they'd been spending over five hours on average every day in video conferencing. Jeez. And that's that crazy. That's nuts. Right? Five hours a day. Yeah. Three hours for deep work. I mean, it makes, it kind of makes sense, right? Because it used to be, I don't know, you just, you maybe you had a team meeting one and you could figure out what you guys had to do for the day and you start executing the work. Now, like you said, broken work schedules. Yeah. Right. My kid comes in and interrupts me. I got to go deal with that. <laughs> Just there's a lot of interruptions in a day now. There is. There is. And so um, on an average, over 87.5% of the workforce, they reported spending at least four additional hours per week just to meet their deliverables. And it's actually worse when you consider the IT industry or software developers, because 
they have to attend all these meetings. And then afterwards, they have to go and start working on their projects and try to improve upon things. So it's insane. And the meeting sprawl is something that I really, really am passionately trying to reduce um, in many places. So one of the things that we do is we try to have smarter meetings. So we reduce it to 25 minutes instead of 30 or 50 minutes instead of one, uh, one hour. The fundamental question that we ask is, is this meeting even necessary? Because if it's a status update, just send an email out or post it in Slack or whatever your favorite channel is and say, this is a status update. If you want to vote or you want to get some kind of a decision made, use Roman voting or just do a poll you know, asynchronously. You don't have to set up a meeting. But what we've found is that you know, over the last year, because we've all moved remotely, we are trying to overcompensate the fact that we're not able to talk physically with each other. And so mm-hmm. a lot of these meetings have become support forums. They're like 30, 40 people in a, me- in a meeting. They're becoming extremely costly for us. And yeah, right. It's the same amount of output that comes in. It's just a lot of ways. So challenging leaders and making them think about that and think about the cost of, you know, operations from a meeting perspective itself, those, those are kinds of things that we talk about. And then afterwards, we include things like enablement, like upskilling your people, increasing the talent. If you really want to go cloud native, it's not enough to just aspire for it or wish for it. Or same, our future state is going to be cloud native and we're going to embrace Kubernetes and everything will be Kubernetes. I mean, it's okay to say that, but what if your your ta- your workforce doesn't actually know how to switch over to much more of a container-based development approach? There are different techniques. It's not you know the same techniques that you say. Okay, I'm move- removing this widget or VM and now substituting it with a container. Just doesn't work that way. So helping them enable and empower their workforce and try to uplift them. Those are some of the things that we do. But but those these are. Five things that I drive on, empathy at the core, execution, collaboration, communication, and enablement. And these are the most important things to help transform your culture, your organization, and your people. And eventually your process will, will get much better because of it. Yeah, it's a very leadership, the way you do it and the way you mention it, it's very, um, you know, you read a lot about, it's a very leadership-oriented methodology, that leading with empathy first, right? Because people have to believe that you will help guide them to the promised land, if you will, Yes. for them to even follow suit. Talk a little bit about, I was following your Twitter, but I, I want to make sure, is your book been published or is it still yet to be published? It is yet to be published. It's currently, uh, so Wiley has agreed to publish my book. And so I'm really thankful and I'm excited for that. With them, we're going through the motions. It's going to come out sometime uh, later August. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping it's going to be a really great uh, uh, read. I've explored a lot of things that has happened over the pandemic. And I also talk a lot about my personal life as well and how empathy has impacted me and stress impacted me and how in the workplace, um, employees and, and leaders are impacted and why enterprises need to have empathy as well. So it's not just limited to the IT industry. It is for anyone who wants to become a leader. And it's, it acts as a guide for people to step up and get into a leadership role by demonstrating empathy for, for their fellow human beings. You know, I'd love to get a little preview of this, of course, without giving it away. I don't want to, you know, don't give anything away, but give us a little idea of what are some of the core, you know, you kind of hinted at it a little bit before. What are some anecdotes from the book that you think will help 
people see the value of empathy. Yeah. We talked about meetings, right? So meetings is one yeah. important thing. The other thing that I do talk about, and this is something that I encourage a lot of leaders to do, especially if you're in software development, or at least you lead teams that have application development or software development. As we're working remotely, the concept of the end of a day has completely disappeared, right? I mean, you're just oh, going yeah. from one meeting to another. You don't know when it's going to end. You're probably working multiple time zones as well, and that complicates things even more. So a normal day for us now is like probably seven o'clock in the morning, all the way up to whenever at night. And that causes a lot of stress and strain upon people. So one of the things that we do a lot, and I did it in the previous role, um, in my previous organization, Pivotal, uh, which was then acquired by VMware. But the thing that we force upon is called a spin down. So a spin down is, um, so we're all familiar with stand-up, right? So stand-up is at the beginning of the day. It's 15 minutes quick. This is what I'm going to accomplish, right? And do we have any blockers? It's really good to set the tone for the day. But what we do is at a regular time at the end of every day, we have what we call as a spin-down. And in the spin-down, we talk about, as pairs, if possible, accomplishments. So what was accomplished on that day, any kudos that we are giving other people. So if, if someone did a really fantastic job, you have someone else give kudos to that person. And then you share all of that, maybe something funny that happened, and then that marks as the psychological end of the day. And that tells people that, okay, you, you are not expected to actually work on anything after the spin down. And what this does is a couple of things. A, it relaxes you. You can then start living the other part of life, um, which is you know having dinner, spending time with your family, uh, your loved ones, your pets, you know, having much more a human touch and quality of life there. What it also does is, as you are talking about um, all these various accomplishments and things that you have done over the day, it increases release of um, these happy chemicals. So there are four happy chemicals that within, within our body, our, our nature has actually evolved us to start using um, over the last number of years. And so you have dopamine, right, which is the incentive for progress. Every time you accomplish something, you have dopamine. And that's really why, I mean, there are a lot of things, especially with developers, they want to flip that red light or that red bar into a green bar that gives them that sense of accomplishment. That's dopamine. Then you have oxytocin, which is the love chemical. It gives you that intimacy, trust, and it builds healthy relationships um, within teams and also um, within other relationships. This usually used to be physical, um, like through a hug, through intimacy or through high fives. This is how you used, we used to get oxytocin, <laughs> but we've evolved. And now we get oxytocin virtually, which is amazing. Then we have serotonin, which is your leadership chemical. And that gives that sense of uh, pride and importance. And then finally you have endorphins, which is one of high. That is, it helps alleviate that stress. It's that second wind that run runners get, you know, just so that they can accomplish whatever goal they had to do. So if there's one thing that I'd like listeners to take from this, it's to always make sure that you find a way to dose or um, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins, so dose. So find a way to dose your workforce with all these happy chemicals. That's really going to help. 
So, so with the spin down, what we're doing is, as we are talking about things that we've accomplished, we're increasing the dopamine level of the team. And then when each one gives kudos about the other people or talks about some really cool things that happen, you're increasing serotonin production within the team. And because you have these two things and you're talking about each other, you have respect built in, you have trust built in, and it improves the healthy relationships. So you have oxytocin. And then because you are consistently doing this spin down every day, during the day, if you find something really tough, your body starts releasing those endorphins because you know at the end of the day, there is value, there is, there is a reward at the end of it. So it's really, really powerful. And I would really encourage a lot of people to um, you know, try to adopt this particular thing. And that's something I go into much more detail in the book, but this is something I'd really love to share with people. It's worked phenomenally with a number of uh, our teams, not only internally, but also with uh, some of the people that I work with. That was scientifically kind of awesome, hearing you explain (laughs) all the chemical releases. Now, do I agree that a spin down would unlock all those? I don't know, but now I want to try, you know, because I've never done a spin down. I've not heard of it. It does make sense to me to end the day on a positive note to give people some like, hey, you've accomplished something for today. Go take care of your life outside of work. I want you to do that tomorrow. Let's restart the day. Yeah. You know, it's something that I think that I want to try. But the way you scientifically, I mean, I mean you, you made it sound like, you know, I don't know, for me going surfing or something like <laughs> all the chemicals being released <laughs> in your brain. Like, yo, this is the case. <laughs> it is. But, but there's one caveat, though. You must ensure that your teams do not talk about the problems or the challenges that they faced. Okay. You don't want them to leave thinking about problems because that will just spoil them. It will increase the stress. Your cortisol level goes up and all those things. So that is a certain amount of discipline that you want to bring in. Always end on a high note because the problems can wait till the next day. Unless it's an incident, a production incident, right? And for the production incidents, it's a different mechanism altogether. But otherwise, I am pretty sure that it can wait. The problems can wait until the next day morning. Listen, you already said you're the master of, uh, or you, you promote DevSecOps. I'll just be like, roll it back. Roll it back. We'll deal with it tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> roll back the code base. Let's deal with it tomorrow. Gotham, you know, the way you talked about that was almost at a medical level. And I also see, you know, we, you got a PhD. Talk a little bit about that what, for our audience. What is your PhD in? My PhD is in um, computer science. I focused on smart technologies for assisted healthcare. I've always had this theme of medicine and healthcare um, in my life. Yeah. When I was young, I wanted to be a doctor, a very specifically a neurosurgeon. So just imagine at the age of probably 12 or 13, I decided, you know what? I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. But my mom was a huge influence for me. She was a doctor. She was one of the most leading researchers in HIV AIDS back in India. And she was wow. the head of the department for microbiology over there and in a very prestigious uh, hospital. So she's been a huge role model. And th- this entire book, I've shared so many stories about how she shaped my life. And um, the book is dedicated to her. She uh, unfortunately passed for, uh, from cancer in 2009. And this, this book is like, a, you know, a, a dedication to her and her memory. And because I wanted to follow her footsteps and I wanted to be in medicine, it's always been so fascinating. The human body, the human brain has been so fascinating for me. But 
as you know, as a cruel bit of fate, I was two years underage when I finished my um, 12th uh, or my high school. And, and in India, you're supposed to be a certain age because they feel that physically and mentally, you're not, you may not be prepared to go and do dissections or, you know, work on cat mm. and all that, right? In med school. So rather than waste two years, I decided to switch over to electrical engineering, which is what my father was uh, a part of. And yeah, we are, we are a family of academics. So I went into electrical engineering, but I always had this craving for, um, you know, helping people, improving the quality of life of humans. So in my master, uh, so after that, I went to my master's, did my master's in computer science. And one of the projects, one of the things that I worked on was, you know, helping people uh, or working on devices that were going to help detect mal seizures or epilepsy, you know, wow, suppress that using Vegas now. So that really gave me that fulfillment that I'm actually doing something in this world. And it's not, um, you know, it's something much more about just, you know, writing code or something else. I mean, not, not that it's not important, but for me, because, you know, I missed the medical portion of things, I really wanted to do that. And so in my PhD, I went into smart systems, smart technologies, IoT devices. We had a smart home where we were trying to um, detect and predict a behavior of patients suffering from Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and try to use technology to supplement their quality of life because you know, these kinds of patients, they forget, they don't know what they're doing. Sometimes they might be in peril and the house or the technologies around them need to detect and call in emergency services if needed or caregivers if needed, because that golden period of um, providing care is so critical for uh, people who are so fragile. So I was working on that and it was an immense experience. And so ever since in some way, shape or form, I always try to help you know, bring in technology to improve human quality of life. And th th that's kind of how it evolved. And empathy has been in there throughout because I'm trying to, you know, help improve the quality of life of humans. And so that's how the book came about. And uh, yeah, that's my fascination with uh, helping humanity. Dr. G, as you call yourself on Twitter, man, that was that was emotional, man. That was that was kind of heavy. Uh, you know, I'm in the same boat. My my dad died early. You know, so you, you know, you're mentally, I'm with you. You mentally start thinking about all these different things and this, this desire to help where you can is pretty awesome. So I commend you on that. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, Dr. G, I call you that now because your Twitter handle <laughs> <laughs> Gotham now, right now it's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Gotham, this is where we ask you questions about your life outside of work so that our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? Okay, let's go. All right, on Twitter, you say you're a foodie. Tell me, what is your favorite cuisine? It depends upon my mood. I'm very moody when it comes, upon, uh, comes to food. Uh, but my comfort food is Thai. It's not Indian, um, <laughs> but I love grilling. And so I go and experience all kinds of barbecue. And I I came here um, to, tech, uh, to, I landed in Texas for my PhD and I've had really great barbecue. I've been in the Midwest for a long time. Now I'm in California. And so I'm on the hunt for really good barbecue. So barbecue and uh, Thai. Well, listen, you already know that good barbecue takes so much time. You're still looking for that pit master, I guess, out there in California. 
I have a Traeger, so I am lucky. I do my own grilling. Whenever I really feel like it, I, I just fire up my Traeger and I smoke for eight to 12 hours. And yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's also super relaxing. <laughs> yeah. The, the, there was a joke my wife told me, you know, she said, you know, if you ever want, like she was telling, I overheard her telling to her friends, she's like, if you ever want your husband to leave you alone, go try to cook something on the grill. He's going to come by, he's going to take over and he's going to just do it. <laughs> I get that. Um, luckily, my wife, um, she has her own ch- uh, gas grill, which she doesn't allow me to touch. Um, so <laughs> it's fine. She does the char and then I, and the sear, and then I go and do the cook. It's perfectly balanced. No, that's awesome. And so we got the double grill action at the at the Palipa house. When you do a spin down, that's when you get time to yourself. What do you typically like to do? How do you like to close your evening so you end up relaxed, refreshed, ready for the next day? I have a soon-to-be seven-year-old son, and he is a lot of energy. And working and being in these meetings day to day, and and he is in virtual school, so it's really, really exhausting for both of us. So the first thing we do is I, I just go downstairs and uh, spend time with him. We're probably out in the backyard doing some stuff, or we're just you know asking about different things. Uh, I do run a lot of experiments with my son. They're all agile and lean and DevOps related experiments. And I share a lot of them, not only online, but also in my book. So we do a spin down with with my son and he gets to a, um, uh, we, we go through a checklist of things. I give him stars. So he gets a gold star if he's really good about something or if he's not good about it, we talk about it. We try to get to the root cause of things. And if he's really being not good, then I give him a red star. So we have that thing. And um, the, the thing that I also do um, at the end of the spin down with my son, especially for helping with the emotional aspect of things, he has these magnetic pieces of emojis. And I ask him, represent how your day was today with an emoji. And so he gets to do that emotional check-in at the end of it. And that's a teachable moment for him as well, because, you know, sometimes we are so prone to getting emotionally hijacked in the day. But what I try to tell him is that, did he really have a bad day or did he have a bad five minutes, which hijacked the rest of the day? And so we have a conversation around that. And, you know, he's he's become a pretty happy-go-lucky kid. And so, yeah, we have a little fun there and then um, probably TV for a while with him. And then dinner. And yeah, I put him up to sleep and then they probably just unwind in different ways, depending upon the mood and the day. Listen, man, you're doing a, I feel like you're doing a better job parenting than I am already. You're already helping your kid develop DevSecOps. My, my kids are just playing games all night. Uh, so I need, <laughs> I got to do more educational stuff with them. Oh, that's high motor stuff. Adaptability, learning how to pivot, not being obsessed with the outcomes, you know, really focusing on the the accomplishments that they have to do. There's a lot going on there. It's not just video games. Oh, I know. I, I joke with them all the time though, because they they I make them I make them do something with their bodies always, because they all have to play a sport. Um, not because I think they're going to be in the NFL, but because I, they just have to move, right? Sound mind, sound body. So important. Yeah, yeah. And so when you know they're like you said, they're on virtual all day, so I make them move. But you know, now I need to make them when they wind down. I got to do some good experiments too. <laughs> well, Gotham, it was awesome having you today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for sharing and opening up that emotional story with, uh, you know, the book, the dedication to your mom. I thought that was really super interesting. And of course, 
you know, I'm really looking forward to sharing this, uh, your story with all of our audience. Well, thank you for having me. This has been an amazing experience. I really, I really enjoyed our, our conversation and our dialogue. Awesome. Thanks, Albert. Thank you. Thank you.